Delaware is a fucking uh, Forbes top 100 hub for credit card processing. No, North Dakota set. is becoming a tax haven, though. Did you see that? I know. Okay. But Delaware was literally set up to be the Switzerland of the United States. Like it was intentionally chartered to be a tax haven for early colonials. North, I, I got to send you all this article. North Dakota has become like the Cayman Islands for tax havens. That's because they just need people there. So like they still have their two electoral votes. Hot pot of the South, not your daddy's Appalachia. Hot pot of the South, progress cannot wait. Hello everyone and welcome to Pot of the South, a production of Change Tennessee. Pull up a chair and refill your sweet tea as we peel back the layers of Southern politics to get a better understanding of what's going on and why it matters. Sorry for the delay uh, between our last recording and this one. Uh, that sweet, sweet Coke money dried up uh, when our gracious benefactor, Charles Coke, realized that we're not actually trying to change things in the way he wants them. Anyway, my name is Gabe, and we are without Maggie this week, who managed to get lost in the minds of polymer and molds. But in her stead, we are rejoined by Tennessee's galactic communist revolutionary, Drew Dyson. Good to be back, Gabe. Glad to have you back, Drew. But this week, we do have a nice special guest who we've been begging to come onto the show for God knows how long, and that would be one Kim Spoon clinical social worker, and co-chair of Indivisible East Tennessee. When it comes to being the co-chair of IET, she's the one who actually gets shit done. So, Kim, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. So, today, everybody, we're going to talk about the biggest topic right now that's going on, and that is the leaked draft of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. And the reason why is because Tennessee, we're blessed enough to have some trigger laws in place here. So the moment this decision happens, shit's about to get really ugly here in Tennessee. But before we realize how doomed we are in the future, Kim, you have a spotlight, uh, something that really just needs to be talked about that you don't feel is being given the attention that it needs? Absolutely. Tennessee's TANF surplus is my soapbox. When we think about surplus, you think of having all you need, <laughs> needs being fulfilled so that you have extra. That is not the case with Tennessee's TANF surplus. For those who aren't um, familiar with the acronym TANF, TANF, that stands for Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. It's also known as Tennessee's Families of Thirst Program. This is designed to provide direct assistance to families who are living in poverty in Tennessee. The state of Tennessee receives about $191 million annually from the feds. That money is intended to go to poor Tennessee families, single moms, the single moms that Bill Lee is so committed to taking care of once they're forced to have children. Yes, that TANF. Uh, let me get back to the 191 million that Tennessee receives annually. Out of that 191 million, 
Tennessee spends around 60 to 70 million of that. And the rest of it goes in, you guessed it, Bill Lee's rainy day fund. Now, some people have said over the last couple of years in Tennessee that not only has it been raining, it's been a damn torrential downpour. It's been a flood, literally. There's been, a, there's been floods in Middle Tennessee. There's been COVID throughout the state. So our surplus is sitting there. Lots of other states who get TANF funds and had money in the bank, had reserves, decided to send a lump sum payment to their TANF recipients. While people were losing their homes in Tennessee and couldn't feed their kids in other states, like Maine and Vermont, they were sending anywhere from $3,000 to $5,000 lump sum payments to those recipients. So here in Tennessee, they have a very um, patriarchal view of the poor folks. And, and, you know, they just need somebody to handle the money for them because they're not responsible enough. That TANF money, is sitting in the bank when we are ninth in the highest rate of child poverty. We are eighth in extreme child poverty and we're fourth in extreme poverty for children under six years old. How can we be fourth when there's $700 million in the bank? How can we be fourth in extreme poverty for children under six years old? And why in your Christian, white God's name, would you want to force more children to be born into extreme poverty? Help me understand, y'all, please. Kim, I think you're looking for logic where logic does not exist, unfortunately. And, you know, I think you brought up a good point of, you know, where's this money going to? It's going to United Way. You know, we were talking about this right before we started recording. United Way just got a nice fat $25 million check from the TANF money. So of that 190 million, 25 of it's being spent, but United Way's taking a fee right off the top of that. So it's, they're not even getting like the needy families, the families that need it, aren't even getting the full amount. They're going to get 80% of it, whatever, whatever the United Way operating cost off uh, project management fee is. United Way has the highest overhead of any nonprofit. That 25 million could have gone to daycare, daycare vouchers. That 25 million could have gone to utility programs throughout the state uh, that help pay utility bills in the winter for low-income families. That 25 million could have gone to food pantries. It could have gone anywhere except United Way to be put to use. And Kim, I think it's super important that you bring this up because a lot of times when us in Tennessee or when our voters are, are starting to, you know, keep an ear out or pay attention to what's important in the state. You know, we're always focused on these huge bills and the over-the-top dramatics of some of these Republican legislatures that we have that we forget that there's real assistance out there that could be utilized or real um, administrations out there that can be utilized to help uh, people. And I think go you know, unspent or unused. And then Tennessee Republicans like to foul our fiscal responsibility. And while we might rank 
towards the top of fiscal responsible states, I don't think it's fiscally responsible when we're also 41st in, you know, our poverty rating. Or like you mentioned that we're in one of the top states for childhood poverty. So I think it's very important for people to remember that when they go, you know, and think about what the state's doing. It's not just these big bills on women's rights, gay rights, gun rights, et cetera, that are all very important. But there are these things that constantly go unnoticed for the lower income individuals in the state that that we also need to focus on that go under the rug. And this was a big story two years ago, but outside of reportings here or there, not much stink has been made out of this again. And I think it's time that Bill Lee, his administration, and these Republicans paid a price for it. Well, it's not fiscally responsible to have individuals in poverty because we end up spending more as well. I mean, through subsidized lunches that the state has to pick up through healthcare when they have to go to the ER and they can't pay for their doctor bills or whatever. I mean, it's, you look at the studies, I mean, and a lot of them focus on homelessness, but it's more expensive to like destroy homeless encampments than it is just to provide a safe place to sleep. And that extends on to when you force hundreds of thousands of people to live in poverty, when you have $700 million in the bank to help them. The, the TANF years ago, uh, Tennessee asked uh, permission to administer the TANF money as a block grant. The same thing with, with, with TenCare. It's administered as a block grant. Block grants don't work. Kim, can you explain what a block grant is for our listeners? Ab- absolutely. It's something that doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> the simple form is it doesn't work. There you, you heard it straight from Kim Poon. Exactly. It's it's a way for for politicians to siphon money off. Uh, block grants are 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 fixed pots of money that the federal government gives to states to provide benefits or services. Now, block grant funding levels typically are fixed. This contrasts with an entitlement structure in structure, which anybody who's eligible for benefits or services can receive them. You see, a block grant is going to cut it down to how many people can be covered. That's like with our 10 care block grant. It's only a set number. If, if we went back to the entitlement structure, that would give, you know, Medicaid expansion to a lot of people in our state. But again, um, history tells us that uh, states don't reinvest savings from these block grants. That's a big lie. That's a big lie. It's it's misdirecting funds away from Tennessee families that desperately depend on these programs, which are paid for by our tax dollars. So we should be concerned. I don't want us to go down too far into the rabbit hole because you're there. I'll take you down that hole. Yeah. Well, we'll say we'll save it for a a future episode for sure because there's a lot to unpack here, and it's a. million tall soapbox. So we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to jump right into the leaked draft and why it matters. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. We have a new sponsor for this week's episode, and that is Hobby Lobby owner David Green. Green and his company have been vocal about their right to deny any employee health care they disagree with. 
except when it comes to generating profits for executives. David Green, I don't like abortion, but I do like when my 401k benefits from the medication for it. everybody thank you so much for tuning in this week because uh, like i said it has been a hot minute since we've recorded and like so we are going to talk about the implications of the leaked draft and to start things off i'm actually going to turn it over to drew because he is the only one on here that actually had the gumption and uh sadomasochism to go and try to read that like 90 page document i saw it and said nope and Drew's like, I got you, fam. So, Drew, let's kick it over to you. What you got for us? I, I have to say that I'm a glutton for punishment. So, yes, I attempted to read all of it. Did I get through all of it? No. We, we started reading Alita's opinion, and let's talk about this. So, I'm not going to get sympathetic over the institution of the Supreme Court. It's, I mean, I think the institution itself has been damaged enough by Republicans. So this leak doesn't mean much to me. However, it is the first time a uh, opinion from the Supreme Court has been leaked before a final decision. So it is a big deal that this happened. Whether or not, I, I'm, I'm not going to dwell into oh, the institution's been damaged by this. I think the institution was damaged when Republicans held a Supreme Court seat hostage and then stole another Supreme Court seat before the midterm election. I think there's bigger fish to fry than worrying about who the fuck leaked this document. With that being said, in Alito's opinion here, he is articulating the end for Roe v. Wade. Basically, a few of his arguments are that, one, the Supreme Court overstepped its bounds uh, it didn't clearly define the right into which Roe v. Wade gave it because there is no direct mention of a right to privacy or a right to abortion in there. He directly targets that. And where this comes from is from the 14th Amendment and the Due Process Clause. It's where we actually get a lot of rights from. So Oberfeld v. Hodges came from that, which established gay marriage. Lawrence v. Texas, which established your right to privacy in the bedroom, which guaranteed, you know, basically the police can't bust in and find you having gay sex and say, oh, you're going to jail. And then you have uh, Griswold v. Connecticut, which guaranteed uh, individuals the right to con contraceptive drugs. These are all rooted in the right to protection. And the fact that they are attacking Roe for the stance means that a lot of those decisions themselves are in danger in the future. But turning back to Roe, what Alito comes back and says is that Roe is not a tradition that was followed. So abortion for its most part, he claims is that it had been outlawed or it had been criminalized in the States. Not exactly true. He's, he's pulling some fun tricks here to deny some things. But one of the passages that he writes is he states that at the time of Roe, 30 states still prohibited abortion at all stages. In the years prior to that decision, about a third of the states had liberalized their laws, but Roe abruptly ended their political process. It imposed the same highly restrictive regime on the entire nation. It effectively struck down the abortion laws of every single state. 
What he's saying here in his decision is that he's basically stating it took the right of the states to determine the abortion laws from them. He's making the argument that abortion was a state's right and that states themselves should be able to determine the validity of when a life begins or at which point the states wants to protect it. One of the other argument makes outside of the traditional thing, and I'm, I'm going to come back to that one in a second because we have some fun things to talk about where he pulls his tradition from. The most important part is here where he says, we hold the Supreme Court and the majority that Roe and Casey must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. The provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. What that means is that he is taking the document at its words. I'm not gonna get too far into the process of legal viewpoints, but you typically have a conservative side that views originalism, which is the constitution is as it is written, nothing more. And then you have a liberalist point of view that is a living, breathing document. This constitution adapts to the time that it's in. Uh, this decision here is making the case that because Roe is not mentioned, because abortion is not mentioned, there's no right. And to go back to what he talks about a, a kind of originalist point of view, I want you to know this motherfucker brings up the 13th century. 13th century, that's the 1200s, just so you're clear, to affirm his viewpoint that in English common law, which is where we derive our constitution and our legal system from, they were criminalizing abortion back then. So we are basing our laws off something that took place over 800 years ago. What's crazy about this is in the 1200s, they were still geocentric. He is quoting a motherfucker who literally thought the earth was the center of the universe and the sun revolved around it. Heliocentrism, the idea that the sun is the center of the universe, became common, uh, became the common acceptance in the 1600s. Like Kepler was like mid 1600s. So this dude was 400 years before science was like, Nah, the sun is actually the center. These motherfuckers in the 1200s couldn't even tell you what anything was. Their idea of science and the human body was giving you arsenic and bleeding you to death in case if you had a cold. Well, uh, so Dave, and I, I want you to know, I listened to a podcast called Five to Four. And for our listeners, if you're very interested in Supreme Court cases and how bad the Supreme Court actually is, please go listen to them. A great podcast. I love listening to them. You're exactly right. We're basing laws based off these individuals that, one, these people are dust and bone. It's like, they're dead. I don't care what they thought, in all honesty. Like, why is someone who didn't have fucking toilet paper telling me what we have to do? The thing here is that it's a big deal because we're overturning 
stare decisis and precedent. And for individuals that don't know what stare decisis is, it's a legal term that basically means it's a, it's a principle of determining points in litigation according to precedent. So you're supposed to follow precedent when you're supposed to do this. We're overturning stare decisis. We're overturning precedent in this case. Uh, 50 years of precedent is that. Now, people will point to this and say, well, precedent's overturned from time to time. Sure, we did that with Plessy v. Ferguson, although I don't think people would argue that overturning separate but equal was a bad decision. Whereas this is completely taking a left turn in terms of going from the view that, you know, there's this right to privacy that women have in terms of terminating a pregnancy to now saying that, well, this was never rooted in traditional America, so we have to overturn it for everyone. And what's amazing about it is a lot of the right-wing and Republican arguments for it is, you know, big government overreaching and all that bullshit that they love to parrot. But it's literally opening the door for the most grotesque governmental overreaches. Instead of an individual, a woman and an individual having the rights to their body, you are opening the door for a government agency to come in and say, no, you can do this. You, you can't do that. And it completely spits in the face of one of the cornerstones of privacy, and that's bodily autonomy. If I'm lying on my deathbed and I need a blood transfusion and the only human being in the world that can save my life is you, Drew, there is nothing that can force the government for you to get, make you give me blood to save my life. That is your right to be like, no, fuck gay, he can die. Or, you know, I think I'll let him live. And by allowing the government to come in and dictate what you can and can't do with your body spits in the face of that concept. Why? Because some of the population has a uterus. Total horseshit. And Gabe, I think, I think we've reached the point where we need a break and let an actual woman, instead of two men, talk about this issue. Let's talk about all the laws on the books that uh, regulate men's bodies. Go ahead. How many are there, Kim? This could be short. I can't find any. Can you? No, but I have a list here in front of me of the Tennessee laws on what women can and can't do with their body in terms of abortion. I'm sure you've got several pages it would take to list them there. Uh, it'd probably take longer than the time that we have. But, you know, it's, I, I don't think it's anything sexist, Kim. Could it be? It couldn't be, now could it? Because the good Christian men of the Tennessee legislature care about everybody. Praise the Lord. Can we just talk about the fact that while our uh, Supreme Court's discussing rolling back rights for women in this free country, just last year, Mexico's Supreme Court decriminalized abortion. Just about, was it four years ago? Ireland let the people vote and they voted to legalize abortion. There's a lot of Catholics there. So what does that say? I think we need to build the wall, but around the U.S. though, <laughs> instead. Like, everyone else knows what the fuck they're doing, but... Uh... Mexico said they'd pay for that now. Here's the thing. 
is that when it comes to these kind of decisions, is that one, it's that when legislatures, especially since there's not a single legislature that is female dominated or federal court, the judiciary, what have you, make these decisions. They're basically saying, I, a man, am smarter than a woman and know what is more important for your body or than you do. And that's, that's the biggest thing is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was right in terms of describing that equality is based in abortion access. I mean, there's not a way that you can cut that. If the state bans abortion, and in Tennessee, we have a trigger law, which means 30 days after the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, abortion becomes completely illegal in Tennessee, except for in the case of rape or incest or the care of the mother. I have a feeling some of those would be changed in the next session. Well, some of our legislatures have already tried to pass bills that prevented abortions for literally all cases, no exceptions. But it's, a, it's an act of equality. Like, and Kim, you would agree here that men have a part to play in terms of creating an embryo and the development of a fetus. It takes them to make it possible. And you know what? It's times like this, I thank God I'm gay. <laughs> Listen to this. A man can impregnate how many women? There's 365 days in a year. He could get a couple of women pregnant every day. But now a woman can only get pregnant once for nine months. So wouldn't it make sense to put the control of the birth population on the person who is creating the problem? Yes. And that is on all men. Straight men, let this be a warning to you. I don't trust you. Especially straight white men, we are absolutely the cesspool of society. As a gay man, I don't know how to handle straight men. We're terrible. I don't know how to talk to you, but I do feel your comeuppance is due. And Kim's correct. Mandatory vaccine for all men. Vasectomy, you mean? <laughs> Vaccines and vasectomies. Mandatory vasectomies. Mandatory vaccines and vasectomies. This is not sweet tea in my glass. No, listen, they could do it when when the little boy babies are born. They could do it at birth, actually. Because it's not it's not a big time surgery. And then when that when that young man gets older, when he can decide that he's responsible enough to take care of a child, then he can have it reversed after he's had a waiting period, you know, to think about. He needs to watch a, a video uh, about it and like what? What is it like the listen? Like I guess what's the opposite of listening to a heartbeat? Like a look at what it's going to cost over the next 18 years in formula, diapers, school clothes, insurance. The doctor needs to uh, plant a like sound bomb in his room that will go off, have it completely randomized on the hour that it will go off, but with a frequency higher from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. Well, and here's the thing is that you know, reversing back to an argument here is that for me personally, I am a person that believes the state cannot tell a person what it can and can't do with its body. It cannot tell a person when it can and can't pursue life. 
Uh, it's why I'm against the death penalty. And it's why I'm against forcing women and other birth givers to be birth or to go through the process of having birth. That can be a very traumatic experience. It can be a dangerous experience for some individuals. If we were to get rid of the rape and incest stipulation or the care and uh, well-being of the mother, I mean, those are things that could end their life. I mean, I am not, I'm pro-abortion. Let me put it this way. We have had this conversation with individuals where they're like, oh, I'm not pro-abortion. I'm pro blah, blah, blah. No, I'm pro-abortion. Pro-abortion means pro-health care. That means I, I am for a woman's right to decide when she wants to get pregnant. That I mean, If she has a one-night stand and says, oh, shit, I got pregnant. I don't want this child. That's her right. If I am a married woman and I'm in my second month and all of a sudden something happens and I'm not going to be able to afford this child, guess what? That's my fucking right to say I'm not going to have a baby. Pro-abortion means pro-health care. And a woman's reproductive freedom is tied to her economic freedom. Absolutely. And we have given in to this Republican narrative so long that we have to be against abortion, but we can be for the decision to make it. So we're pro-choice, but not pro-abortion. That's bullshit. I am so sick of seeing some of these liberals that I know post these things about how oh, I'm pro-choice, but I'm not pro-abortion. I'm pro-abortion. It's healthcare. That's the thing. It's not your damn body. It is your decision to decide when you are ready to have a child. And on that, on that note, let me segue into this very most important question for people to contemplate is if you feel that you're not able to trust that woman with the decision about whether she is ready to become a mother or not, if you can't trust her with that decision, if she decides to abort that child, how can you possibly trust her to be a mother? This is coming from somebody who's been a social worker for 30 years, who worked in child protective services. I had one of my last clients before I retired was a 14-year-old a girl who was raped and got pregnant, but not only did she get pregnant, she got HIV positive when she got raped. Her parents didn't believe in abortion. She begged them. No, that life was precious. Well, guess what? Their own daughter's life wasn't precious to them. She committed suicide. So they didn't care enough about their own daughter who's already got a heartbeat, who's already breathing. I mean, the stories that I could tell you. And when I worked at a genetic center where people from all over the South came to this uh, specialty genetic center at a hospital and the abnormalities that I've seen in fetus or the rare, rare genetic orders, disorders that I learned about. I mean, when this one woman found out she was gonna have a baby without any limbs, no arms or legs. She felt so guilty for not wanting that baby. She talked to her pastor. 
our pastor told her it was God's will. That's the thing about these fucking ghouls who run our government is if it's exactly like what you just said, Kim, they, they care more about a clump of cells that doesn't even have a fucking heartbeat that is literally no bigger than my loogie that I spit while I'm running than an actual living, breathing individual that has a personality, that has hopes and dreams and goals and aspirations, that wants to be somebody. But the moment that that spit wad gets that real heartbeat and takes a breath, nothing fucking matters because clearly, as you demonstrated in the beginning, the state of Tennessee is sitting on $700 million for antenna funds that could go to some of these low-income women and individuals who are forced to carry fetuses to term. Rep. John Reagan in Anderson County, who is pro-life, told committee this session that he did not agree with the state funding every child's school lunch because it fell on the taxpayer. That's not pro-life. That's pro-birth. That's pro-cattle herding. You are saying that birth givers, because I also want to state this, I've seen this, not every person that gives birth is a woman. We can have an argument about that if you want, but not every person that gives birth is a woman, and we have to stop narrating it in this fashion. Um, but the, the whole thing here is that these people don't care what happens. They just want a scapegoat, and they want a culture war to attack someone and to attack the women for it. It's, 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 a, it's a political, uh, it's something that has given the right-wing politicians power. It's, it's something that they've all, there are some people who will cast a vote based on nothing but the abortion issue. And that happens so often in the South, Kim, and that's the thing. We're in the Bible Belt here in the South. Now, between the three of us, there are probably widely different political views. Gabe, you're Jewish. I was raised Catholic. Kim? I was raised Baptist, Southern Baptist. Three complete, the three most different religious denominations that you could probably get. But there are these things within the South where we are so segregated sometimes based on our religious beliefs that we forget that there are individuals that don't have these beliefs and that we cannot impress upon them our beliefs. And one of the biggest things that I learned while I was at Catholic school and being, uh, will not ever claim to be a minority, but being Catholic in the South is a minority. Not everyone knew or believed in what the Catholics taught. And that was my first eye-opening experience to how religion kind of worked. Me as a sophomore in high school being like, wow, the majority of my friends are Baptist or Methodist or they don't really practice religion. And one surefire way to ensure your Catholic kids do not become Catholic, send them to Catholic school. That's a surefire way to make sure that they don't grow up Catholic. I would like to say that as you know, with a Jewish background, the Torah actually protects the right to an abortion. So if you know, they want to go down this whole religious thing. Well, 
you actually outlaw it, you're infringing upon my religious freedom, so. But your religious freedom doesn't matter. I want to just clear something up right here. Uh, we didn't come from y'all's rib. Y'all come from my vagina. Kim said it best. So for all those Baptists, I know that's going to come as a as shocking. Well, and here's the thing, too. Growing up in the South, a lot of what we hear is religious statements. It's a very religious area. And I will be the first to say everyone deserves their right to practice whatever they believe in. But you do not have the right to persevere, to, to put upon me and others the right that you believe in. That's what's happening in the Supreme Court. It's happening in the Tennessee legislature. And, and my thing here is that when it comes to those things, you can have your closely held beliefs on your religious values, but you have to understand that a majority of the country anymore does not preview the same religious ideology you do. Almost 70% of individuals believe that abortion should be protected in, in almost every case. It, the world has changed, but not only that, is there has always been to some extent, an idea that the state shouldn't have a, a religious view. Now, that being said, religion in the early part of this country was used to justify slavery, and that's a sin that the South and this country has to pay for, and that we have to recognize to move on. But you cannot control women's bodies based on something that you know a plurality of Americans does not base on. And we're in the minority opinion now. This is the minority opinion, regardless if it's not in the Constitution or not. He has taken a minority opinion in this, and the majority of the Supreme Court has signed off. Yeah, but but back to the Southern Baptists. Kim has a bone to pick, I can tell. They they no, they believe their belief is traditionally all humans are born sinful and everybody deserves eternal punishment now. See, that's why I'm thankful I was raised Catholic and why I might consider myself an ex-Catholic now. On my deathbed, I can say, God, I forgive myself. And the Catholic Church is like, yeah, he gets into heaven. But, but the majority of the, of the Tennessee legislature is Southern Baptist. And so they're, they're using, they don't have a, they don't have a worldview. They're going to make law in this state based upon what they were raised to believe. But you know what, Kim? They don't base their views upon their religious views. If they did, they would understand that Jesus was for loan forgiveness. Uh, Jesus was for fending for the most needy. And they don't recognize that. And so what they... Not that Jesus. Not the dirty hippie. White, white conservative Jesus. Sorry, the one that speaks at CPAC and was born in Wichita. But, but the thing is with that is that they're so focused on this idea that they're beholden to these individuals that so-called pull themselves up by their bootstraps and can fend for themselves. They're not for the individuals that are poor. Because the thing is, is that they will outlaw abortion in their states. But when someone like Scott DeJaris needs his mistress to get an abortion, he can fly her to California and have her get an abortion because it's legal there. And the rich women and the white women, the white rich women, let me repeat that, white witch, shit, let me not repeat that. <laughs> 
they will always have access to abortion care in this country. What it's going to affect is the 63% of women that live in rural counties in Tennessee that will not have access to any kind of abortion care in the state and will not be touching nearly, nearly, not every, but nearly a single state on our border that will have abortion access after Roe v. Wade ends. Absolutely. Again, it's just, it's more demonstration and everything that y'all just laid out about the ghouls who sit on the six ghouls who sit on the Supreme Court and the group of ghouls that run the Tennessee legislature and the adjacent states for that matter. Because as you just said, you mean, yay, Georgia turned blue for the presidential, but it's still a hardcore majority red state in every other top to bottom outside of Atlanta and Savannah, Alabama, Jesus Christ, uh, Kentucky, uh, Missouri, Virginia, and then the Carolinas. I mean, it's, we're in a zone that wants to dehumanize anybody that is not a white cisgender male. They can do that by these laws and rate and uh legislation in which they can say oh it's up to the state knowing that they're going to throw it to these legislators that are going to do everything in their damned power to take away the rights out of everybody who isn't that doesn't look like them in the mirror there's a lot more to say on this issue and i'm sure within the coming weeks there will be more to talk about to defend roe v wade and that's the best we can do now is defend Roe v. Wade at all costs, defend abortion rights at all costs. If you're a man, this is not just a woman's issue. Uh, they will not stop at this issue on the Supreme Court. As I mentioned before, there are several other aspects of the 14th Amendment due process clause that are at stake now. Uh, my rights as a gay man to be legally married to my husband are on the line. If you're interracially married, your rights to be interracially married are on the line. These things derive themselves from the same part of the Constitution that Roe v. Wade did. We talk about it as being a pie figure. And what it is, is most people think that if individuals take a piece of the pie from them, that that piece of the pie is gone. And so if we take away or if we give rights to someone, we lose rights. And that's not the case. If women lose the right to an abortion, every person loses a right, whether or not it affects you. Because if we allow them to take away that right, it allows them to further erode the rights of others. And that's the thing that needs to be thought about the most as we consider or as we continue this dialogue down the road and as we continue this road. And I know how hard it can be to continue to tell individuals to vote and vote and vote because we voted a democratic trifecta and we feel like we've got nothing done. And we have voted in Tennessee and feel like we have barely gotten anywhere. But that is the cost of democracy. It is always at the ballot box and at the fringes 
And unfortunately, we face a time in which not both parties are equal. One party is fighting for democracy and one party is fighting for fascism and theocracy. <laughs> Abe, I hate to end it on such a dark note, but. Yeah, well, you brought up, you know, what's at stake right now. And I think it's important for people to understand that this isn't just a flash in the pan or something that we can ignore, that it's shit really matters right now. So take what Drew just said to heart, take everything that Kim has said as well to heart and really think about it and what we can do to move forward. And, but with that, we are going to take a break and when we come back, we've got a few people that could just use a bless your heart and hopefully to send you out for the week on a slightly higher note than the death spiral that we are currently existing in. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. While mainly known for his staunch support of traditional Christian values, David Green is also an avid proponent of forced pregnancy. Going all the way to the Supreme Court, he fought for his Christian right to deny health care to any Hobby Lobby employee. David Green, the only Christian values that matter are the ones I decree. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us. And to get through the week and until our next episode, we've got a few people that could just use a good old bless your heart. It's bless your heart with Bobby June. Hello, hello. Oh my, you little angels. Look at you. Just so wonderful. Thank you. And bless your heart. Bless your heart. Kim. As our esteemed guest, would you please start us off on who needs a bless your heart? Oh, I would like to send out blessings to State Representative uh, Jason Zachary. Uh, He represents, or should I say he misrepresents, House District 14. I just want to bless his heart. He keeps posting Bible verses, and then his actions are everything that is antithetical to being a Christian. Bless his heart. He has Christ follower in his profile. Something to be said about the person who screams from the mountaintops that they're, they're a follower, but then does everything that is the antithesis to their, to what they're preaching about. Bless his heart. Well, Drew, what about you? Who's somebody that you feel just needs a good old bless your heart? Keeping on theme with the Knox County Republican representatives, I am going to have to give my bless your heart to uh, Knox County Mayor Glenn Jacobs, who tweeted earlier this week about the protection of life with Roe v. Wade, when in his first year of office and his first budget presented a budget that would cut the indigent care 30%. And I worked as a social worker during that time. Indigent care means that we were able at Cherokee Health Systems to provide care to individuals that could not afford health care. 30% cut meant that we would have to downgrade the 1,100 individuals that we could care for to about 700. And for someone that is going to talk about the sanctity of life, 
I just think that it's super important that that be consistent and not just a clump of fucking cells through the birthing trimester cycle. So bless your hearts to Kane, a.k.a. Glenn Jacobs, the unfortunate mayor of Knox County. Nothing, nothing gets him going like choke slamming at-risk populations. For me, I'm going to stay kind of on brand like you did, but pivot a little where you said stayed on brand with Kim to uh, local representatives. I'm going to stay on brand with us, the Supreme Court. And mine is actually the wife of one Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, Virginia Thomas. Jenny! This wasn't really talked about that much, but she was openly advocating and texting, reaching out to members of the insurrection group about what they can do to overturn the 2020 election. Now, maybe, you know, we're, you know, kicking a dead horse or something, but that's a pretty big fucking deal that the wife of a Supreme Court justice is advocating to undermine our democracy, which ties perfectly to what Drew was talking about earlier, where the current makeup of the court has turned our democracy into a laughingstock and a mockery. And now we have the spouses of the people who make the biggest fucking decisions of our lives saying, oh yeah, the vote doesn't matter. Let's do whatever the hell we want. So Jenny, Virginia slash Jenny Thomas, bless your heart for putting your foot in your mouth so hard and showing the world your true colors, your husband's true colors, and the true colors of the supermajority on the Supreme Court. So thank you and bless your heart. So with that, thank you everybody so much for joining us. We greatly appreciated it and sorry we were gone for so long, but we are back and we are here to bring this sweet, sweet leftist music back to your ears. Uh, before we go though, Kim, as our guest again, do you have any internet pluggables you would like people to go check out? Well, you know I'm going to give a shameless plug for Indivisible Tennessee. Our work is cut out for us in this state, but we've held our ground and we've held it strong. We will continue to hold the elected officials of this state accountable, whether they like it or not. Are you on Facebook, Twitter? We are, we're on Facebook under Indivisible Tennessee. We're on Twitter under Indivisible East Tennessee. Go check them out, support their work. They're awesome. Like I said, Kim's the one who gets shit done. Uh, Nathan kind of just hangs out, I think, and, and sends us pictures of his dog. Drew, what about you? Do you have an internet home you'd like people to check out? I do. People can find me at Andrew Dyson on Twitter or on Facebook. You'll find me posting about shit going on within politics and the latest Taylor Swift theories. You can also follow us on at ChangeTN underscore on Twitter to catch up on all the latest things Change Tennessee is doing to move the state forward. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Graham851. Thank you all so, so much for joining us. 
be sure to like, subscribe, and leave us those sweet, sweet five-star reviews as it helps others find us and hear the siren song of Appalachian leftists. Thanks, everybody, and have a great night. Hot pot of the South, not your daddy's Appalachia. Hot pot of the South, progress cannot wait.